If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 35. Psalm 35, we are continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms. And hopefully, if you've been coming the last several weeks, you knew where we were going. I think it's on page 489 in the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. That's the Christian Standard Bible. We actually recommend both translations as elders here at the church. Uh, We typically preach from the CSB, but I like the poetry of the English Standard Version better. So that's why I've chosen to preach from it. And I hope you've found it now in your Bibles, and I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnashed their teeth with me. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. 
Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? Will you join me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning asking for your strength, Lord, that you would uh, provide all that I need to be able to speak uh, clearly and boldly what you would have me to say. Lord, would your spirit lead and guide? Father, would your spirit move among those who are present here today to hear your word? Father, we thank you for the words we have heard from you already from Psalm 35. May they speak deeply to our heart, and may you instruct us how to live as a result of having heard your word preached today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Ephesians, Paul exhorts Christians to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. I have a goal to introduce more psalms, some psalms proper into our times of corporate worship over the next few years. There's a lot of benefits to singing the psalms. It was Israel's hymn book, and I believe it is intended to be the Christian's hymn book as well. There are some beautiful musical settings of the psalms, but as I understand it from my studying and preparation for Psalm 35, there were not many songs that have been composed around this chapter in the Psalms. And that's probably because this is one of the imprecatory Psalms. Now is as good a time as ever to dive into just a brief word about imprecatory Psalms. What are imprecatory Psalms? In some Psalms, the authors of those Psalms will sometimes appeal to God in prayer, requesting that he pour out his wrath on their enemies. It is significant to note then right away that they are asking that vengeance belong to the Lord, that God's justice be done, and they are not taking justice into their own hands. Ultimately, their appeal is for the Lord to bring justice upon their enemies at his discretion. Now, in this psalm, the author is David. David is actually not known, he's, he's, sorry, he's known for not taking matters into his own hands. Like, he's not notorious for taking his own vengeance. In fact, to the opposite, he is known for not uh, killing Saul when he had the opportunities a couple of times. And so we'll talk a little bit about this in the context today. We know David was not condoning the idea of any sort of personal vengeance. He showed by example what Paul taught in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will repay the wrongs done to us. But then we can also note that David, he's claiming innocence in this psalm, insofar as the charges laid against him, which is a far cry from, say, where he was in Psalm 32, when he said, Lord, your hand is heavy upon me. I feel the weight in my bones because of my sin. 
Here, he is claiming this was not because of something I have done. He's claiming innocence. In this case, he is suffering hatred without cause, which will, in fact, become the theme of our message when we consider how this psalm can be applied to us. But I think the most important thing to remember when you're interpreting imprecatory psalms is that David was not writing as a private citizen, as a private individual. He was writing as the anointed king-to-be of Israel or the king of Israel. So when someone attacked David, he was actually attacking God and fighting against God's will. And David understood that. To quote James Montgomery Boyce, the judgment David calls for is a righteous judgment upon those who, by opposing him, are opposing God and godliness. It's one thing to forgive a wrong done to us interpersonally. It's quite a different thing when you are in a position of authority, whether you're a policeman, a judge, a governor, the president, when a wrong is done to another citizen for whom you have responsibility. He was in charge of administering justice and in charge in that circumstance. So it would be wrong for somebody in his authority to allow a wrong being done to go unpunished. James Boyce also rightly points out, there is a place for private citizens, even Christians, to oppose evil vigorously. We can pray for the conversion of the very wicked. But if they are not going to be converted, and many are not, we can certainly pray for their overthrow. It was right and good for Christians to pray for the fall of Adolf Hitler. It was right and good to pray for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. In fact, as another commentator pointed out, and I found this really, really helpful, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are implicitly saying we ask that God's kingdom supplant the kingdom in place now. And any sort of evil or wickedness that is in that current system will have to be overthrown for the Lord's kingdom to be set up. So if we want the triumph of good, we want the defeat of evil. We have to recognize that we are asking for the downfall of a wicked system when we ask for the Lord's kingdom to come. And those who persist in identifying with that system cannot be exempt from the implication of their choices to identify with the wicked kingdom in place. So I think that gives us a good start this morning of understanding imprecatory psalms. But now before we move in to hone in on verse 19 of Psalm 35 and make application to this psalm, I want to offer a brief look at the structure of Psalm 35. Now, structure is in scare quotes because the reality is that as Alec Motyer put it, this psalm is more an outpouring of a troubled spirit than a carefully crafted poem. This is David just pouring out his heart unto the Lord. But there is a way to break down this psalm, and it has to do with identifying the three verses of this psalm or strophes of the Hebrew poetry that all have parallel endings in verse 10, verse 18, and verse 28. They all end with a word of praise from David. So if you're penciling in brackets around the verses in your own Bible, 
you could do a bracket around verses 1 through 10 and call it a cry for help. A cry for help. In those verses, David further develops the image of a battle. A battle that he introduces in verse 2, where he asks the Lord to uh, bring the little shield and the big shield. That's what the shield and the buckler are, two different types of shields. So bring them in and surround him and draw a spear and javelin and rescue him. And for example, in verse 6, you have David mentioning the angel of the Lord pursuing after his enemies, which harkens us back to Joshua and Moses and the Exodus, where the angel of the Lord led out in battle. And then you could put a bracket around verses 11 through 18 and call it a cry of the soul. So a cry for help with the battle imagery. Now this is a cry of the soul where David develops the image of a lawsuit that he introduced in verse 1. That's where he asked the Lord, contend with those who contend against me. And that word contend has a legal sense, like contend in the courtroom against those who are bringing a legal case against me. False witnesses, for example, he describes in verse 11. And then you could put brackets around verses 19 through 28 and call it a call for justice, where both of those images then, the battle and the courtroom, are intertwined and brought together. So I've given you a very high-level view of the outline, hopefully a tool for you if you wish to take and do further development and further study on individual verses of Scripture in this psalm. But I've chosen to take that high-level approach to the structure to give me time in the remainder of this message to focus on verse 19, where David says, Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. Now, those of you who have a uh, cross-reference Bible like I do, if you are looking at verse 19, you will see that there is a reference to John 15, 25, because our Lord Jesus quoted this psalm. So with the time remains that remains today, I want us to see how this psalm applies to David, to Christ, and to us. How does Psalm 35 apply to David, to Christ, and to us? So note with me first how David was hated without cause. David was hated without cause. It seems entirely plausible that this psalm is all about the long story of David and Saul found in 1 Samuel chapters 13 through 31. Now, one possible objection to that might be the fact that uh, David uses the plural, you know, contend with those who contend against me, my enemies, plural. One commentator suggested that this is perhaps because of the same scruples that kept David from killing Saul when he twice had the opportunity that he never names an individual, but speaks in the plural and anonymously. That's a possible explanation. I just think it's also plausible that Saul had a band of people with him hunting David in the wilderness, and so there are plenty of people who were after David. You'll recall the history. Saul had been anointed and then subsequently rejected by the Lord as king of Israel, and then David was anointed as king-to-be. David was brought into play the harp for Saul 
when he had a harmful spirit that was given to him from the Lord. And I think that that could go very nicely with verse 13, where David says, I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting and I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. David was caring for Saul in his sickness. But later on in the account of Saul and David, Saul's jealousy of David's notoriety after defeating Goliath and the Philistines led him to an insatiable hatred of the shepherd boy. And he thus attempted numerous times to kill David, and eventually he put the son of Jesse to flight into the wilderness. Hiding out there, David was surrounded by Saul and his men, but he found refuge in the crags of En Gedi. It's a beautiful place. I've spoken of it before. Brother Jeff has mentioned it as well on his trip. It's a beautiful place, but you can envision those little holes in the rocks and caves and places to hide out. Well, it was there in one of those caves where Saul was relieving himself that David spared Saul's life. He took a corner of his garment instead of taking the opportunity to take vengeance into his own hands. He spared Saul's life a second time in 1 Samuel chapter 26. David had never done anything to harm Saul. All he had done was live in faithful obedience to God, serve him by faith. He was undeserving of this militant uprising against him. Saul and his band of supporters hated David without cause. But David's response was to pray for the Lord to be the one who would contend with those who contended against him and to fight his battle for him. Note, secondly, Christ was also hated without cause. Charles Spurgeon says that beyond a doubt, David's Lord may be seen in Psalm 35 with a spiritual eye. Not just David, but David's Lord is to be seen in this psalm. You see, the rejection that David experienced in Psalm 35 was fulfilled in a greater sense when Jesus was hated and rejected by his own people. The Gospel of John tells us that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You see, beloved, Jesus was the quintessential innocent sufferer. It's one thing to be opposed physically or attacked violently, which of course Jesus was to the point of death. But his suffering was not only physical. He faced the vicious malignment of false witnesses, which always strikes our soul on a different plane. There is perhaps no greater agony that one can feel in his or her soul than to be falsely accused. If you ever have been, you know what I'm talking about. To have one's motives questioned, or even worse, purposefully impugned, is equated to physical harm in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25 and 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or sword or a sharp arrow. So the old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is simply not true. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we know that at his trial, there were a number of false witnesses that spoke against him. 
There were others who were coaxed into bearing false witness against Jesus, which shouldn't surprise us because from the outset of the gospel accounts, if you were here when we were studying through the book of Mark, you'll remember that as soon as Jesus started teaching with authority and started healing, that there became this strange alliance of strange bedfellows of religious leaders and politicians that wanted to seek any possible way to put Jesus to death. Of course, Jesus knew they were planning to do so. He, in fact, came to this world for that very purpose, to be delivered up by the Father into the hands of sinners, to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. He purposed to do as much. But nothing Jesus had done ever justified the world's hatred of him. All Jesus had done was live in obedience to the Father. But they hated Jesus without cause. It's what led Jesus to say to his disciples in John chapter 15, whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And here's where he quotes Psalm 35, 19. They hated me without cause. This leads to my final point, because it can be hard at times for us to understand how these imprecatory psalms can apply to us. But I've focused in on this verse in particular because Jesus said to his followers that if they hated him, the world will hate us too. We are in Christ, are we not, brothers and sisters? We are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We are united with Christ. So I suggest to you thirdly that Christians are hated without cause. Now, much of so-called Christianity today, it looks exactly like the world. In an effort to make the message more palatable or more acceptable, truth gets watered down to the point where some mainline denominations look no different from the world whatsoever. The same flag flying proudly in corporate America is also painted on the steps of churches around the world. But contrast that picture with what Jesus said in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The reality is that the way of Jesus inherently means the way of being hated by the world without cause. For what are we to be maligned, brothers and sisters? Peter says, it better be for your good behavior. Look at 1 Peter 3 and 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when, not if, 
when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's right. Christians will be slandered for sexual fidelity. We will be slandered for teaching our boys and girls God designed us male and female for his glory and for our good. We will be hated for not joining in the sexual revolution. We will be despised for putting scripture over politics. We will be despised for defending innocent, preborn human beings. Hated without cause. But that is not a surprise because Jesus did tell us, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. One of the most helpful things that I ran across in my study for Psalm 35 were the notes from a pastor from the 17th century named Zephaniah Smith. I had never heard of him. I came across his sermon notes on Psalm 35 in the Treasury of David. It was a compilation by Charles Spurgeon where he gives an exposition of the chapter, but then also gives notes from other preachers that he respected as uh, supplementary information. And I read Zephaniah Smith's notes, and I thought it would be helpful for you and for me. It certainly encouraged my soul. He asked the question in his sermon, okay, Pastor Jason, you're saying I'm going to be hated without cause. I'm going to be falsely accused for things. Why does God allow that? God is powerful. He could prevent this from happening. Why does God not stop the mouths of the wicked so that they are not able to speak against his children? His answer, all things work for the best of them that love God. So this also works for the good of God's people when they are hated without cause. God permits it for a good purpose in his people, and thus he frustrates the hopes of the wicked. They intend evil against the godly, and God disposes of it for good. Sounds a lot like the story of Joseph, doesn't it? The pastor then went, went on to give a five-fold good that comes when you are hated without cause. And here are his points. First, God will use the experience of hatred without cause to humble us. He will use it to humble his people, bring them to examine their own hearts. Is there actually something amiss? Is there any truth to this? In other words, although they feel clear of the accusation, they are forced to examine whether there's anything else that isn't right between them and the Lord. They have to search their hearts, and this will make us more humble and help us cleave more closely to God. Second, God uses the means of hatred without cause to bring Christians to the end of going to their knees more often, to seek him, to be the one to plead their cause, to clear their innocency. This is not the only psalm. In fact, the psalms are replete with David's prayers to God 
to clear his name on his behalf, to work out his salvation for him. It leads us to prayer. This is why the Psalms are so important for believers is because when you are hated without cause, pray through the Psalms. Ask God to help you and be your defender, to be the one who gives justice. Pray more earnestly with David. Lord, lead me in the right path because of my enemies. Then they will be earnest. We Christians will be earnest with God to keep us from falling into that sin that the wicked desire that we fall into. Thirdly, God uses the reproach of the wicked as a medicine, a preventing medicine against the crime that the wicked are laying to our account. So when they think of, less Christians are thinking of these people who are hating me without cause, then imagine how badly they'd hate me if they had just cause, if their accusations were true. Oh, wouldn't they love to say, as David said in our psalm today, aha, aha, those Christians are hypocrites. So it teaches us to pray more and more against that particular sin that they are laying against us and to watch out more and more that that sin that they say that we are going to do or are doing never happens so that they can never rejoice over us misstepping. Fourthly, God uses the experience of hatred without cause to exercise the graces of his people. (laughs) It's like when you pray for patience, watch out. Something inevitably will happen where you will need to be patient. And whenever you are being falsely accused or maligned, the tendency is to rush, to defend, to shout, to say no, no, to plead, and you start looking like the he protesteth too much situation. We need to go to the Lord and rush to him when we are hated without cause. So God uses the experience to test our graces, to grow us into his likeness. That when we have a bad report, we respond in a similar fashion to whenever somebody has a good report about us, that we are clinging to God in good times and in bad. You learn a lot about a person when they don't get their way. And so God would allow these types of experiences to come into our lives to show us our own hearts and our need for his graces. And then fifthly and finally, God uses these experiences to teach Christians to think about others who may be being falsely accused. Christians will learn not to receive a false report against their neighbor. They will be persistent to find the truth of the matter before they believe something they hear. They know how to comfort others who are going through similar circumstances. And in this way, God disposes of the false accusations and the hatred without cause for good as you help a brother or sister who may be enduring the same thing. God sovereignly makes the wicked person the servant of his people in that very thing which the wicked think to do the wrong the most about. He uses the wicked as a rod and a wisp to scour off the rust of a Christian's graces 
to correct their security. And when the rod has done its purpose, it is then thrown into the fire. And thus you see God disposes of the wicked's false accusations for his people's good. This is Zephaniah Smith's five points about God using these things for our good. Beloved, the experience of being misunderstood, being mistreated, being maligned for your Christian faith is not optional. It's a guarantee. I speak to too many parents and grandparents who are wrestling with how to love their children and their grandchildren when they are trying to stick to biblical truths, biblical principles, and righteous living and are being maligned for it. It's not an option. It's a guarantee. But Psalm 35 teaches us that the Lord himself is the one who must contend with those who contend against us. The Lord himself must be our shield and buckler, our defense when false accusations arise. The reality is, we, I, all of us, were once enemies of the Anointed One, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Guilty of sin and rebellion against His righteous rule, were it not for the grace of God, we would find ourselves to be the recipients of the curses called down upon those who set themselves up against the Lord and his Messiah. But praise the Lord by his grace, we have been chosen to be recipients of his mercy. And thus in this world, recipients of hatred without cause as well. You know how I said there weren't many songs written about Psalm 35, well, there was at least one. Isaac Watts, the famous hymn writer, gave it a stab, and I'm not sure anyone could do better than Isaac Watts. So listen as I close with his rendition of Psalm 35. They love the road that leads to hell. Then let the rebels die, whose malice is implacable against the Lord Most High. But if thou hast a chosen few amongst that impious race, divide them from that bloody crew by thy surprising grace. Then will I raise my tuneful voice to make thy wonders known. In their salvation, I'll rejoice and bless thee for my own. <laughs>